The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome Dr. Jeff Ritterman. He is a member of the steering committee of the Physicians for Social Responsibility based in San Francisco, California, and is the former chief of cardiology at Kaiser Richmond Medical Center in Richmond, California, where he served for 30 years. Dr. Ritterman studied biology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and received his M.D. at Temple University in Philadelphia. Most importantly, Dr. Ritterman has dedicated his life to both medical care and political activism and has won numerous awards for his work as both doctor and community activist. Dr. Ritterman began his activist work in the peace movement and supported the great boycott of the United Farm Workers Union. He worked as a VISTA volunteer, teaching runaway and dropout high school students, and he has also been active in international health, which brings us to our topic today. Dr. Ritterman started the Committee for Health Rights in Central America. He founded the Southern African Medical Aid Fund to help those suffering under apartheid, and he has personally delivered medical supplies to those in need from El Salvador, Honduras, Costa Rica, Zambia, and Fallujah. He and his partner, Vivian Fire, who is chair of, for the Commission on Human Rights and Human Relations for the City of Richmond, California, make a terrific team. The two have recently traveled to Iran on a peace-building mission, and both speak widely on the medical, humanitarian, and environmental consequences of war. In addition, Dr. Ritterman also serves his local community on the Mayor's Task Force on Environmental Justice and Environmental Health. And it is with great pleasure that I welcome Dr. Ritterman, and the article that made me seek him out was an article he wrote for Truthout titled, Monsanto's Herbicide Linked to Fatal Kidney Disease Epidemic, Could It Topple the Company? Dr. Ritterman, welcome. Thank you, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, thank you for all of your great humanitarian work, and I hope to cover a little piece of that today with our listeners. I want to know how you went from doing activism work really in this peace movement and in trying to expose the horrors of war to looking at Monsanto's herbicide. What led you down the path to investigate this? Well, Vivian and I were recently invited to the presidential inauguration in El Salvador because of work that I had done in the 1980s in medical solidarity with the people of El Salvador. And it sort of caught me back up with what's happening there, and I was shocked to find out that the U.S. was withholding $277 million in aid unless El Salvador would buy their seeds from Monsanto uh, to buy GMO seeds. So that was kind of what got me first interested and to look into it. And then as I looked into it more, I, I uncovered that there is a fatal kidney disease epidemic that's ravaging Central America as well as Sri Lanka and India that's been going on since the mid-90s that I knew nothing about as a physician, and, and that kind of shocked me. And then to find out that this kidney disease epidemic might well have a link to glyphosate or Roundup, 
the herbicide that Monsanto makes. And so putting the pieces together, what I uncovered is that a large number of sugarcane workers in El Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Guatemala, have died of fatal kidney disease. El Salvador has now the leading country for kidney disease mortality on earth, and Honduras and Guatemala and the, uh, Honduras and Nicaragua in the top ten. And what all the people who have succumbed to the disease have in common is that they work in hot weather, they've been exposed to various pesticides and herbicides, and they are exposed to heavy metals either in the soil or the water. And a very bright pharmacologist from Sri Lanka, which also suffers the the fatal kidney disease, made a hypothesis that glyphosate or Roundup is binding with the heavy metals and delivering it to the kidney tubule where it's toxic. And the reason it's uh, so plausible is because Roundup started its career as a chelating agent because it binds heavy metals. It was actually first patented by Stauffer Chemical and used to clean out the heavy metals from pipes. So we know this complex of glyphosate and the heavy metals exists in nature. We know it can be absorbed through the skin or ingested or inhaled. And uh, it's now a leading hypothesis and both El Salvador and Sri Lanka invoking the precautionary principle banned this herbicide, Roundup or glyphosate. Well, at the same time that they banned it, the U.S. is demanding that they buy GMO seeds whose only supposed advantage is that they're resistant to an herbicide that they've already banned because they're fearing it's killing the kidneys of their farmers. So U.S. policy at once is schizophrenic in terms of the science. Either we're not aware of the science, in which case we're basing foreign policy on ignorance, or we're aware of it and we're ignoring it, in which case we're putting Monsanto's profits above the health and the welfare of El Salvador's farmers, or maybe both. So all of that has sort of been been playing out, and it looks like the U.S. is going to maybe back down on pressuring El Salvador because this is coming to public attention, and, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Now, because you're a physician, I know that one of your jobs, of course, is to rule out different causes of a specific disease. So let's walk through the steps just a little bit together. Are all of the farmers farming the same crop? Or do we see different crops? And can we say that the common denominator of all, perhaps it's a different crop that they're farming, but they're all using this one herbicide? There are different crops, and they are all using this one herbicide. But so is everybody using this one herbicide. Because it's the most popular herbicide on Earth right now. Its patent has run out, and now China produces more of it than anywhere. But I think Monsanto had it approved for use in 120 countries on 100 different crops. And it's even the sort of common thing that your neighbor is using on their lawn, God forbid. So everybody's using it. 
the Sri Lankan farmers and the Indian farmers are, and it's also maybe in Egypt and Thailand, are farming different crops. In Central America, it's mainly sugarcane. Before the sugarcane, there was also a lot of cotton and there was a lot of spraying of toxic herbicides, which also had heavy metals, which contaminated the soil. So that's part of the story. Interestingly, in 2011, when the Salvadorans in a big public health conference in Mexico City, their delegation was demanding that this be put as a high priority for the Americas, the U.S. delegation from the CDC beat that back, maybe falsely thinking that, you know, we should keep the focus on diabetes, whereas this is a wholly different kind of kidney disease. So the U.S. has sort of lost a lot of credibility in this whole discussion, also because the main U.S. investigators are from Boston University and their money is coming from the World Bank, and the World Bank gave them a million to research it after they gave big sugar companies in Nicaragua tens of millions to expand sugar cane production. And the analysis I read suggested that they did that to counterbalance the propensity for Latin America to all start buying Venezuelan oil, which the World Bank sees as, I think, too leftist. So it looks like farmers around the world are sort of being subjected to political games being played on the world scene. And what we need to do is reclaim the attention for public health and say, wait a second, let's put the health of the farmers, the health of the population first, and let's make that what determines whether or not an herbicide should be used or should be banned. And interestingly, glyphosate or Roundup is coming up for EPA approval in 2015, and I've been researching the safety of it beyond this Central American fatal kidney disease epidemic, and there are a lot of serious questions about glyphosate safety, and I think there's actually enough scientific evidence that at this point we should ban it, which would be a, a huge political step and would really pull away the central pillar from uh, Monsanto's empire because all the GMO seeds are based on them being Roundup ready or tolerant to the herbicide. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the physiology of this disease. Specifically, you're right, we have research that is often debated, right? Whenever there's a study that comes out pointing a finger at the harms of glyphosate, there, there are always these doubters that interject doubt into the whole debate, and so the consumer of the media is left wondering. But let's talk specifically about this strange kidney disease, because as you mentioned in your article, we know that most of the kidney disease that we see here is really linked to diabetes or hypertension or other diet-related risk factors. But this particular toxicity is linked to the chelation effects of glyphosate. So if I'm understanding correctly, then, the glyphosate binds with these heavy metals, and because it's bound, then it prevents the liver from detoxifying those heavy metals, and they can go as a compound together, held together tightly to the kidney tubules. And is that the site of injury then? Is that how it works? Exactly. 
the glyphosate binds the binding sites on the metal, which is usually cadmium or arsenic, that the liver would normally latch onto. So it's kind of a, a Trojan horse passing through the liver. And the reason that's important is the first place that blood goes from our digestive tract is through the liver. This That's how our drugs get detoxified and so on. So it evades uh, the liver's detection of metals. And, you know, our body uses all kinds of heavy metals. Our, a lot of systems depend on iron, like our hemoglobin. So the body's got to have a way of picking these out of the circulation and that's done in the liver, and sending them to where they need to go. But this cadmium glyphosate avoids that. It's tightly bound, and what happens is in the kidney tubule, the environment is extremely acidic, and that acidy environment breaks the bond, and then you have the ability of the arsenic or the cadmium to be picked up by the tubule, and it causes necrosis of the tubule, the tubule dies. Actually, eventually, the tubule separates from the rest of the filtration system, so it's kind of like uh, the hose is cut and there's no communication, and uh, that's when you go into kidney failure. Now, when you have kidney disease from high blood pressure or diabetes, it's the filter part, it's the so-called glomerulus that gets primarily attacked. So people have known for a long time that this is probably of toxic origin. It may well be that the hot weather exacerbates it because when you get dehydrated, you can get necrosis of kidney tubules, acute tubular necrosis, and that's even an alternative hypothesis, although I think it's unlikely to explain it by itself because people who work in blast furnaces in the iron industry under extreme heat don't get that sort of problem in their kidney tubules. So I think there's got to be something more. But, you know, it's only a theory, and it's a plausible theory, and then you're left with what does a country like El Salvador do who has witnessed in 20 years all of a sudden it's young men being wiped out. It's now the second leading cause of hospital mortality in men in El Salvador, and there just aren't enough dialysis machines or kidney transplants to handle it. So it's uh, it's an extreme emergency. One of the startling uh, statistics is that men in El Salvador now die from this chronic kidney disease of unknown etiology at a greater rate than they die from diabetes, uh, leukemia, and HIV-AIDS combined. So it's a major killer, and it's a killer of young men in their productive years. There's an area in Nicaragua that's now known as the Island of Widows because so many of the men have died. So it's a, it's a huge international tragedy. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Jeff Ritterman. He is the author of Monsanto's Herbicide Linked to Fatal Kidney Disease Epidemic, Could It Topple the Company? And this was published by Truthout, and we are reviewing how Roundup herbicide can be affecting this population, a wide swath of people in South America, Central America, who are facing 
kidney disease of unknown etiology. There's something in the environment going on, but we're not quite sure what it is. You know, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, from a dietitian's perspective, where we look at elimination diets, where we remove something from the diet if we think it's causing a problem and see if it doesn't, see if the problem doesn't resolve. And I'm wondering in those communities where Roundup has been taken away, is it too soon to see any benefit? You know, I don't know of that data, so I couldn't really comment. But I think it's a very interesting point, this diet that you you bring up, because what we also need to understand is the theory behind GMO seeds is that they give rise to crops that are tolerant to the herbicide Roundup. So the farmers spray those fields very liberally. They plant the crops in rows very close together because they're not going to weed, and then they spray those fields very liberally. Those crops, which are soy and corn, alfalfa, uh, sugar beets, canola, cotton, so cottonseed oil, those crops contain glyphosate residues, which are in our diet. So everything made out of corn, which is everything in prepared food, or made out of soy, most of the cases of birth defects that you'll read about in the literature from pregnant women who have been exposed to glyphosate are in Latin America in areas where there's GMO soy being farmed and where there's often aerial spraying. And what you see there is a whole increase in birth defects of the, uh, often of the, the spine, spina bifida, cranial facial defects. And you can produce those same defects in the laboratory in test animals. And it looks like they even know the pathway. It's related to vitamin A, uh, which is a very important signaling pathway in embryological development in all vertebrates going from amphibians to birds to mammals. So it looks like we even understand the mechanism of how glyphosate is causing birth defects right now in human beings. And the places that are being hit the hardest are these big GM soy areas in Paraguay, Argentina, Brazil, those areas of Latin America. Are we seeing any of this kidney disease in places in the United States where we have high arsenic levels in the water or soil. I'm thinking of some of the southern or the southeastern parts of the country where arsenic was used in poultry. I think that a lot of those chemicals have been since banned, but I know arsenic has been a problem in some of the areas where where it was used in poultry farming as well as used on fruit trees. And I wonder if we're seeing any of this disease in similar or slightly similar areas here. I think it's a great question. I didn't come across any specific claims of that in the literature I reviewed. There was a graph of the rise of kidney disease in North America that paralleled the rise of glyphosate use that I saw in one of the papers, but it was just a corollary. You, right. you know, you couldn't claim 
causality out of it. But I, I think that, you know, you point out a very important question because these toxins end up staying around for a very long time. I mean, in my part of the world, in California, arsenic and mercury were used in gold mining. Mm. And that goes back to, you know, uh, the 49ers. And yet we continue to have poisoning of the bay from mercury right now, uh, possibly arsenic as well, that dates to mercury mines. So, you know, these kind of problems when we put poison in the soil and we put it in the air and we put it in the water and we put it in our food supply, it it seems a little foolish to think that at some point it wouldn't catch up with us because so many of these biological systems we share. Like I mentioned, the, the vitamin A signaling pathway is quite primitive. It goes back to the beginning of vertebrates and glyphosate attacks that. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you for looking at this particular issue and bringing it up because you are a physician and you can connect those important dots between this acute and chronic illness and what we're putting on our soil. And helping people see that connection is so critical. Now, I want to change topics just a little bit because I'm also fascinated with all of your humanitarian work. And I want to ask you, what have you learned? What are some lessons that you've learned from your international work that you would like to bring to our listeners? Well, it surprised me when I would go to a place how dearly I was regarded and how much of a difference it seemed to make to people if I was bringing medical supplies to the African National Congress's clinic in Lusaka, Zambia, they welcomed me as if I was a UN ambassador, and it just seemed to me that it was so important in so many of these places, in Mesa Grande and in Honduras with the Salvadorans, and when I brought medicines there and other places, just the sense that they weren't so isolated and alone and that there were other people in the world far away who were thinking about them and writing about them and organizing about them seemed to make a real difference. So I think people who have a chance to embark on on that work, and, and while it seems to us that we're making a very small contribution, I think the amount of hope that you can engender in people who are feeling isolated and alone is well worth the effort. And uh, that was something I hadn't really thought about. I had thought much more in material terms how much medicine I could bring and how many things it would treat or not treat. But I think the act of solidarity also brings terrific hope to people. And so that in in itself is important to do. And I, I think the other aspect is when you do that sort of work, you always get back more than you put in. The stories you hear, the people you meet, the the lives you touch, the lives who touch you make you a better person, you know, than you would otherwise be. And what's a greater gift mm-hmm. than that? So I think it's those two things that you can you can give a lot even though what you feel like you have to offer is modest 
and that you'll get back much more than you ever put in. You know, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I want to get back to policy because I feel like policy is really at the heart of so much of this suffering. And then acting as an activist, which is oftentimes seen uh, negatively, I, I find, unfortunately. I'm sure you've experienced this as well. You know, you're labeled an activist as if that's some kind of negative thing. But you're doing such great humanitarian work. What kinds of policies must we as citizens in this country work on to improve the lives of people worldwide? Well, equity is first. We have to address equity, and I would refer everyone to uh, the work of Richard Wilkinson in the UK and his book, The Spirit Level. But basically, everything goes to pot when we become more unequal. Health indices plummet and social well-being plummets. Everything you can think of from obesity rates to how many of us are in jail to how well our kids score in math and science to how long we live to how much we abuse drugs gets worse when we become more unequal. So we have to address equity. That's key. And that's a public health crisis that's invisible. Second is the food crisis. This GMO is part of it, but our addiction to things that are really not food, we call it junk food, but it's it's either junk or it's food. It's never both. And here I'm talking about a lot, all the sugars we're eating is a whole new paradigm shift on sugar, and you don't have to get fat to get a heart attack or a stroke or diabetes from sugar. So we have to understand that food, what we grow, fresh fruit and produce and fish and poultry and meat and eggs and cheese, that's food. And what comes in a box that's processed, that's made from bits of what they get out of a corn plant or whatever, is not. So that's those two things, taking back the food system and working on equity are huge. And, of course, the gorilla in the room is climate change. And here, you know, we have to heed what we've been hearing from our leadership in 350.org, Bill McKibben and others. If we burn 20% of what we now have, we have an 80% chance of staying within the red line 2 degrees centigrade, uh, above that, we're, we're really fried. Even at two degrees centigrade, my part of the world loses half of the Sierra snowpack unless we plant a lot of trees, which is what we need to do right now. So that whole thing, climate change and transitioning immediately from fossil fuel and taking away the power from the fossil fuel industry to determine energy policy, um, those are the crucial things, I think. Well, Dr. Food, Rooney, energy, and equity. We will have to leave it there and ask our listeners to look for more of your writing online. We have been speaking with Dr. Jeff Ritterman. He is a member of the Steering Committee of the Physicians for Social Responsibility based in San Francisco, California. He has dedicated his life to both medical care and political activism and has won numerous awards for his work as both a doctor and community activist. We started out talking about his latest article, Monsanto's Herbicide Linked to Fatal Kidney Disease Epidemic, Could It Topple the Company? I want to thank 
you so much for being my guest and for your work. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and thank you again for carving out time for being my guest today, Dr. Ritterman. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you.